It's tempting to say that in meditation we become more sensitive, but perhaps we simply become aware of how sensitive we actually always are by removing the filters and the calluses of distraction, uh, of the quality of stress and uh, uh, kind of the recycling of thoughts and feelings that separates us from the world. One becomes more aware of even simple uh, sense contact to, in nature, for example, or in just objects. And this can extend or deepen to a point of um, unusual experiences of kind of the luminosity of nature itself. I don't know if any of you have experienced this, but the mind can get extremely attuned to the sensitivity that's already here. To touch and become familiar with this sensitivity is a doorway into uh, deep understanding. And so meditation, specifically insight meditation, functions in such a way that the uh, proximity, the intimacy with experience can yield a perspective that we just don't have and insight occurs when we, for example, see something of the uh, vibrating impermanent nature of things, not because we've tried to, but just because there's sensitivity. We also become aware that the constant flow of contacts is not providing any one stable place to land and that the constant flow of contacts, simply put, is a lot. It's a lot. The language the Buddha used to talk about the body-mind and uh, invite us into this sense of intimate contact with the world was uh, a, a language of uh, just bare looking at what's happening, like contact, like the arising at the moment of contact there are uh, pleasant and unpleasant and neither pleasant nor unpleasant feelings that occur in such a moment. And the uh, observation that the mind is turned and pulled by these things. 
and he spoke also just in a very, uh, you might say, blunt and simple way about the human experience of being being gathered around these sensitivities, the sensation and perception. And said, have a look at this. Look as directly and intimately as you can at this because it will, it will free you. It will make a difference in your life. His basic teaching on the Four Noble Truths is really, uh, you could say, two noble truths, suffering and the end of suffering. And we look at the fact of suffering and the first noble truth says something very simple. Again, it's a practice, it's not just a philosophy. There is this suffering, turn towards it and have a look. Very different than saying there happens to be this suffering. If you see it as a practice, then what that's saying is turn towards it, be intimate with it, know the experience as it actually is, which is exactly the sensitizing that happens, or shall I say, the knowing of the sensitivity that happens as a result of carefully being present in your life. And meditation is a specific form of that that goes particularly deep. And what we often see when we come to the sense contacts with this body are, of course, the straightforward bodily dukkha suffering that comes with um, muscles and organs and so on. And we say, turn towards it, really look at it, be intimate with it, because when you try to run away, the suffering gets worse. So it's a practice. In talking about suffering, one is talking about the end of suffering. To talk about suffering is to open the possibility that not that the body won't suffer, but that the accumulation and reaction that makes it infinitely worse is going to uh, It doesn't have to be like that. In interpersonal practice, what we see is that all of these little pieces, the sensitivity, the contact, the feeling, the responses of being pulled, have this 
very interesting, you might say, jump or valence charge to it. Because when the contact is with another human being, whether it's visual, auditory, through the being present energetically, or mind to mind, which is through all these things being received and interpreted and resonated and through language, that all these forms of contact, eye, ear, body, nose, tongue, mind, when it's another human being, that all of the particular conditioning associated with our uh, social nature comes up, comes out, is called forth and vibrated. Man, it, it's it's um, a contact that is goes from pure sense contact to mind contact of a of a of a type, a particular type that is extremely powerful, compelling, and. As we could expect from uh, this species that evolved socially, that lives socially, that could not survive if we didn't, but also just look at what the nature of this contact is when it's with another person. You're not contacting something that is uh, in any way static, and it is contact between the most complex thing in the universe, the human body-mind system, in the known universe, I should say, and another one of them, two of them together in contact. And the complexity is both interesting and it's frightening, or shall I say, it's, we're sensitive to it, and it can be frightening or tender. And all of those contacts of a lifetime, all prior interpersonal contacts, condition every present and future contact. We can say all the rocks or all the cars or all the windows that I've ever seen or touched condition my contact with cars and rocks and windows, right? But it's kind of a narrow spectrum of conditioning. But think about the spectrum of conditioning of you, of me, with other human beings. Think of the breadth of it, the depth of it, the subtlety of it, and think of the power of it. So that each time our eyes are in contact and I see a human face, that what arises is dependent on all those prior human contacts. And now what moves through is not just something blunt like memory and, you know, I think that you look like someone or something. At levels that the conscious mind doesn't know, the whole body is responding to 
all the layers, whether it's male, female, certain age, whether it's someone I know or don't know, and simply the fact of another, just the fact that it's another person. And all of a sudden, with all contacting all of those prior contacts, like stimulating them, is bringing up all of the longing, all of the fear, and not all of it at once, but it's all latent in the moment though. It is all latent in the moment. And the organism, of course, is saying, am I safe? Is there something here for me that I want? What is this? How do I, how do I work with this? And it's a lot. It's a tremendous amount. So meditating then, we understand as, you know, coming to know, being, uh, coming to know the sensitivity that's already here. And it's, wow, you remove those calluses. You remove those furry layers that have built up as protections and as insulators. And what you get is uh, potent in each contact. And I would say the potency is there whether you know it or not. That doesn't mean it's activated. Because if we meet in dullness, it's not activated. We can stay within a kind of cocoon of uh, fear or even the cocoon of desire that seems to be reaching out, but it's reaching out within all of the reactivity that's without mindfulness and kind of separated from the other, protected by <laughs> by the distractions, protected by the fear, protected by a kind of vigilance that doesn't even know where to land. It's just no a noisy encounter. If we understand this then, and really see that this is at the heart of the Dhamma, it's at the heart of the Buddha's teaching, that the nature of suffering refers to the totality of our contact with the world and the reaction to it, and that this particular aspect of the world has tremendous power, then we see that the interpersonal suffering is necessarily a, 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 an intrinsic part and an important part of that first noble truth, that truth of suffering. If we're not turning towards the totality of dukkha, of the suffering, If we're segmenting off, uh, you know, I'll be with this, I won't be with this, then naturally that which, that much will remain hidden and that which is hidden 
enslaves us. Remember that to speak about suffering is to speak about freedom. So we're asking, what is the enslavement? What is the freedom? As a whole life, not broken off, nothing separated out. Just as the organism, as you and I, want to get everything right and settled in our physical senses and we want to have the pleasant, uh, you know, things to eat and we want to stay away from the unpleasant and all of that, we're constantly in this same dance with people. I want to get the pleasant, I want to stay away from the unpleasant, and by the way, I will ignore you if you are neither pleasant nor unpleasant, you kind of don't exist, right? It's like, whatever. And what does whatever yield? It yields delusion, it yields, I basically don't see you. If you don't serve me or you don't threaten me, you're invisible. At, at the micro level of moment to moment. So we begin to see that, you know, the greed, hatred, and delusion piece is here, relationally as well. And that we're driven by it. Just the way we're driven by the greed, hatred, and delusion for the kind of the gross sense doors. So it must be the case then that the origin or the arising of dukkha and the cessation of dukkha also leaves nothing out addresses the totality of the human experience. And this arising of suffering, this arising where constantly, moment by moment, the world is being rebuilt and in the vanishing, we don't have to build that world, but what are the forces that drive that building? The arising is just the building, the, the, the making and getting stuck in and, and situating ourselves in this matrix of stress. But what drives the arising? Why is it pushing forward? What are the forces there? Why does it sustain? Why does it keep going? Right? This is understanding the nature of the human experience, understanding the kind of the, the problem, the human dilemma.
and the arising has a force of a kind of a It's like a, a raw uh, a, a wanting or dissatisfaction or a hole in the being that is just like the yeast is turning towards sugar or the flower is turning towards the sun. We're trying to get pleasure which of course includes staying away from pain, right? So it's, it's all the same thing. But we're constantly thirsting for something other than what's here. And this kind of longing and urges and um, the inherent sense of always tumbling into the next thing with a, with a, a, a hunger, trying to fill fill up until we can be sated and satisfied. And we do get temporarily satisfied. Let's face it, that pleasant peach or mango, that, you know, whatever your pleasure is, massage or coffee or your sports team wins or something like that. Yeah, pleasure. But as, as long as there's this constant thirsting and temporary pleasure in this incredibly contingent world and this incredibly sensitive organism where everything is, you know, the next pleasure, the next pleasure through the eyes, through the ears, through the tongue, the mind, keep the mind really entertained and, and feeling all these things that it wants to feel. Well, it's not possible, of course. So the driving, one of the drivers is this hunger for pleasure, this thirsting. So let's just stop there and say, wait a minute, that sounds familiar. And the sensitivity we know to the interpersonal, to others, has this amplifying quality of experience. And now we say, wait a minute, are you saying that interpersonal thirst or hunger for pleasure is driving this life? Yeah. Right, exactly. That the, all of that nuance, all of that background conditioned by all these prior contacts, my relationships with my mother and my father and my brothers and my sisters and my peers as I was younger and then all the people in the world and my sense of being in culture and in society and those are all relational, social, conditionings, that whole mass is conditioning this vibrating organism in its thirsts. And here I am vibrating in my wanting 
and I can't get enough. I can't stay full. I'm always hungry. So, okay, wow. I get it. That's a force. It's a force in my life. You know, if you really look at it and you're honest with yourself, this is the turning towards, right? Rather than saying, oh, it's a bit much. You know, I didn't sign up for this. Well, you got it anyway. You were born. That's how it works. So this thirsting, you say, wow, is there no rest? Little moments, moments of gratification. And if you have a life that has been fortunate enough to include certain perspectives and practices, maybe there's moments of peace even without sensory gratification. Great. We'll get to that later. So this constant building up that this body-mind has done since birth, and we could easily say since before birth, or if you prefer, if that's too Asian, <laughs> what about built up just through your genetic history? through your DNA and the, carry, the way each of us carries the evolutionary history of the development, not only of a fleshy body with its desires, but of this insanely powerful um, mental capacity. I don't want to just say brain because people immediately separate brain from the body, but the brain, the brain's activities run all the way through the body. The, you know, the, all of the neurons, physical neurons, like actual neurons that are in the heart and, and even more in the gut and all the hormonal system. This is all doing, uh, participating in the activity of the brain. So that's why I'm careful about just saying the brain. But if you'll allow me just for shorthand to say the brain in its incredible power, astonishing power, the power to look at and begin to recognize things in the world and to name them and to begin to manipulate them and to relate with others in them and through the power of this folded cortex that we have and everything that goes with it what's happening is that it's not just this kind of um, organism that's only sensing the raw data of sweet and sour and so on. It's storing it. It's figuring out where is it next time. And it's learning to want it. And it's, you know, uh, the whole brilliance of survival and coming up with survival learns to survive because we relate, that's how we have been able to hunt and be, been able to build things and so on. 
So the brilliance is applied relationally. But what that's doing, all that brilliance, that power, as it stores up all this stuff, it becomes a self at the center of all of that storage and all of that tension of how do I get the next pleasure? How do I stay away from pain? And all the strategies, and I become my strategies. I feel like the one who is being chased. I feel like the one who is longing for safety. And it becomes really obvious if I put this in interpersonal terms. I become the one who wants to be with you or who is scared of you. I become the one who feels a certain way because uh, I have been in my culture and in my relationships. So all of this construction that's happening that conditions this wanting that we were talking about, all of that is building up at the center the sense of I am I am this, this is me, and I must survive. I must live. I must stay alive. We're not just like a lizard, just this reptilian brain that, you know, has only this immediate instant moment here, and if you die, well, whatever. It's not like that for us. We're longing to survive, to live, to become. And it's not just the survival of the body, but there's a, a sense of drivenness, a thirsting for uh, the uh, stability, safety, and ongoingness of this personality of this me. So how do, I, how do I do that? How do I feed that? Well, of course, physically, it's simple. We have all these mechanisms. We try to survive and uh, you can get that right away. But what does it mean to survive relationally? What does it mean to exist and continue existing relationally? Because we already know that this complex mechanism is functioning. All of these things are functioning interpersonally, not just with rocks and windows. So what is this survival? In each moment of contact, how do I, how does myself find itself? How does it survive? How does it, how does it uh, try to stabilize? Well, it stabilizes through your seeing me. I exist with you. I become. It's, I mean, for example, if I'm uh, thirsting to feel my existence stabilized, my me stabilized, and you say, Greg, you're just such an interesting person. Ah, temporary stability. It's a, it's, a, it's a tense and fragile stability, but it's the best I've got. 
or you 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 say to me, um, uh, I I I read your book, you know. It's like my the, like some part of me would want. I actually don't do this, but I want you to know that I could just sort of say, "Oh, good, I exist with this person," and I could say. Oh, I can sort of relax a little bit. I can feel a little bit safe, like I am. But let's get a little more immediate. What about, let's say, mommy and daddy? And there's this child. And the child is seen by mommy or seen by daddy. Child exists, child relaxes, child feels safe. That's us, guys. That's, that's coming to be and longing to be, and we long for it all the time. It's not like, okay, I've been seen enough in this life. I can stop now. We don't have that choice, except in the big picture, which I'll get to in a minute. So we constantly do things to be seen, to exist, because it's survival, and this whole organism is oriented towards survival. The self was built up in, our, in all my relational contacts. Here I am, here you are, we make each other. And what are my strategies for, for satisfying that, for satisfying that thirst to become and constantly stabilize myself? Well, I'll do all kinds of things to get seen. If I'm a little kid, I'll do anything from try to get good grades or something like that. And if that doesn't work, I'll scream and throw fits and throw my spaghetti across the room. Just look at me. That's all I, that's all I need. I must receive that. But how about in my intimate contacts? What's it like not being heard, not being seen? There's a whole set of scientific literature on the experience of loneliness. Loneliness is physically painful and it's built in deep into our organisms that loneliness is, will be painful. It's adaptive. It's helped us survive because we couldn't survive without the tribe. But now, if I'm with my wife or my partner and I am not seen, then the pain that comes up as that self feels like it's threatened and withering, or if I just don't have the contact that's going to allow me this kind of uh, satisfaction of the becoming, that's, that's death. So I'm driven. We're looking at the energy that's driving this organism, right? The Buddha called this tanha, this thirst, and it drives the life of suffering. It's like the fuel. And there's another kind of paradoxical thing that comes up out of this. 
and it's built on this fact of our sensitivity that one can touch in meditation and understand the sensitivity, right? And that is because we're so sensitive and because this sensitivity, as we said, is particularly powerful relationally, interpersonally, that that flood of too much causes us to recoil. It's like, wow, I, I can't handle this. This is like, and this, this recoiling is a pulling back from becoming, from being seen. It's like looking to get out. Life is too much. In the moment of any individual in a relational contact, but also life is too much. You know, if you grew up in the projects and then you got fired from your job when you were 23 and then, you know, and, and all of a sudden drugs are looking pretty good. Get me out. Get me out. That urge to get out, to not be, to not become again, it's too painful, it's too much. Get me out of this life. And this is not just a uh, kind of a innocuous fact. This is a fuel, a tanha, a craving, an urging. Get me out. The urge to not become vibhava tanha, to not become, to not become relationally, to not be, continue becoming in the world. So we have a million strategies for that, just like we get strategies for becoming. You know, for becoming, we might have a bright red car, have a look at me, or we might do something to dye our hair or wear our clothing in such a way that people look at, look at us or perform in the world in such a way or donate things. We do a lot of good things for becoming, you know? We do a lot of good and we want to be seen in doing the good. It's not com always completely altruistic. Sometimes it is. But often we do the good and we get in return. Here I am. You know, the, the library is named after me. I have my, my name on um, a, a, a plaque on the wall at the Zen Center of all places. You know, I mean, there's, this is what we do. You know, I'm going to become and there's all kinds of ways to become. And some of them are very sweet and very helpful. All the little exchanges where we say, hi, and you say, you say, hi, right? It's like, you are, and you say to me, you are. Oh, we are. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a natural kind of sweet thing also, but where there's hunger, there's seeking, and where there's seeking, there's fragility, contingency, and, you know, we see the dynamics of suffering. So the strategies for non-becoming include all kinds of stuff, including, you know, simple 
personality like uh, shyness or getting away, you know, because of the fear or fear of intimacy, this kind of thing. Of outer strategies for the grosser desire to get out would include all the addictions. All the addictions are about escape, about vibhavatanha, get me out. Get me out through work, get me out through sex, get me out through um, video games and internet, get me out through uh, drugs and alcohol and so on. So, if we could just know this with the thinking mind and be free, I guess this talk would be over. But it doesn't work like that because the, you know, the, the building up of the self and all of its mechanisms, the building up of all of the urges and desires of the sense doors and, and the patterns, the strategies for getting the pleasures, the relational pleasures and, you know, all the social pleasures and also the sensory pleasures. These things have a certain effect on the body-mind. We are stirred, we're agitated, we're tense in this matrix of our, of our longings. And it's kind of a part of the human I don't know, it's a kind of a sad fact, maybe, that because we're so tense and so distracted and so wrought in our fears and our urges, that the mind can't get clear and settled enough to see just what I named, to see the longings and to see that it's not working. It's all we know how to do. We're so ensconced, enmeshed in our strategies of, of personality, our strategies built around longings, that we don't even see it. We don't see that we're tense. We don't see that we're driven. And we take certain things to be pleasurable that are really pr pretty much painful and, can, and sustain the longings. You know, so many of our excitements, our social excitements and our sensory excitements, if you pay attention to what's actually happening in the, in the, in the body-mind, it's, you know, compared to this, uh, if I may, bliss of the body-mind at ease and unburdened, which is not a nothing, it's like a, you know, the, a brilliant and beautiful experience. It can manifest as in rapturous ways or ways that have this, this sweetness of happiness, the spiritual happiness that's not dependent on conditions. But we're, we don't see that because we're so caught up, we're, so, we're too tense. 
So the cycle goes on. The not seeing is ignorance. The not knowing this stuff is a kind of ignorance. We just keep doing it. We stay enmeshed. And exactly the willingness to look at this is, you know, part of practice, part of the turning towards suffering and what drives this constant arising. But as we said, to talk about suffering, to look at suffering, is to practice for the ending of suffering. It's possible to become perhaps in moments clear enough, simple enough, direct enough of vision that we see the nature of the longings. We see that we're constantly trying to feed them. We even maybe are willing to admit that it's not working. So there can begin to be, as the body-mind relaxes and stays mindful, not relaxes and goes to sleep, but you have both the mindfulness and the steadiness, the tranquility and concentration, as we begin to see, then not only does the, the painful aspect of being caught and constantly frantic become clear and you want to let that go, but you also begin to experience moments of letting go. There's like a reduction of the noise level of tension and longing and becoming. And as that noise level reduces, this natural uh, joy can be known. The clarity, the love, now in the moment of interpersonal contact, I'm not all filtered out. I'm not lost in longing and stress. Just as I can be with nature in a way when the mind is clear and stable in a way that I feel really with nature. I feel renewed. So it is in this moment of contact with you when the mind is ready to receive and I can be with you with the spontaneous quality of loving kindness, of friendliness and care, because there's nothing in the way. There's just nothing in the way. And we share this human experience and we share this that kind of resonance of care that's built into that human experience. Not blocked off by my fears and you, you, you're, not, you're no longer just a set of eyes to see me because I want to be seen or a set of eyes to see me and I don't want to be seen. 
you're no longer an object for, for just my pleasure, but we are in this moment in a kind of simplicity and arising out of that simplicity where there's interpersonal contact is exactly the friendliness, the care, the love. That's exactly what's there. Absence of aversion and fear. The Bodhi used this word adosa, absence of aversion. It's another word for metta, another word for loving-kindness. Nothing in the way. That's all. Poof. Spontaneous. Spontaneous care, spontaneous compassion. The heart vibrates. That's how it is. But also, in the being in the world, and by that I don't mean just other people or not other people, but the total experience of being alive, as there's this diminishing of noise, diminishing of drivenness, of hunger, of tanha, craving, there's also the lived experience of ease. So one experiences the uh, pleasures that come with peace. It's a different quality of pleasure from the stimulation of constantly contingent sense contacts. It's abiding. And the heart turns in that direction. You don't have to say, oh, I will try to be a good meditator. I will try to be a good Buddhist and I will try to want peace when really what I want is, you know, coffee and a, a new husband or something. <laughs> but one actually feels through direct experience the pain in this direction of constantly feeding and one feels ah the letting go into this undrivenness and then the organism manifests in a different way. So I'll just close by saying that the totality of the path like the totality of the human condition is as profoundly interpersonal as it is individual. You can't separate those two. And our practice here is simply a reflection of that, that we can engage interpersonally in a way that yields insight into 
the very you know identical insights that we would engage or touch or be gifted with in traditional silent individual practice same stuff and the shall we say synergies that are possible in uh, touching with our full energy and integrity the individual experience of meditation, of knowing the nature of this organism in its finest possible detail by the mind that is bright and clear. With the being with another in that same quality of clear seeing and stability of mind. And those working together is uh, just as all of the path factors, the noble eightfold path, all of those factors are not only were taught by the Buddha as relational practices as well as individual practices, but one has to ask, could it be any other way? Could the path of freedom somehow not participate in the relational doesn't makes no sense to me at all it's a total human experience right so it's a total human path and so we're looking at a in this retreat a certain aspect of that that well-engaged can bear beautiful fruit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.